What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let's play a game, some word association. I'm going to say two words and you tell me the first thing that pops into your mind. Does that sound okay? Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. Tidy whities Walter White. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of what you hear when people talk about TV nowadays, like post-breaking bad, is about writing and about the writing, or the decisions that writers make. But television is a visual medium and introducing your main character in nothing but his underwear is a choice. And it, I do wonder, because I was hoping that was the way you would answer that question, what does this particular type of underwear bring to mind for you? I have a connection to them since I wore them as a child, but what do you think when you see this? What does this tell you about a character? Well, for me, I think of it as something that like a middle-aged dad type gets in his stocking for Christmas uh, every year. I also think of, you know, like children, something that little little boys wear. They're sort of no nonsense, no frills, very matter-of-fact, very practical uh, clothing choice. Yeah. You know, when I think about it, I think it it was the only choice when you were a kid for me. Uh, it was my only choice. And, you know, I grew up and then I got to make a decision of what kind of underwear I was going to wear because I would, you know, as you get older, you think, hey, people are going to see me without my pants on. I'm going to take them off and, and they're going to see what I'm wearing. <laughs> and yeah. it, it's one of the things that jumps out at me right away about this show and something that, that resonates and stays with me. Tidy whities are a choice. They're a choice not to make a choice. Does that make sense? Very much so. It's a really great point. And I think it uh, tells us a lot about the character of Walter White. Exactly. Tell me why you're doing this. Seriously. Why do you do it? Money, mainly. There you go. Nah, come on. If you've gone crazy or something, I mean, if you've, if you, if you've gone crazy or depressed, I'm, I'm just saying. That, that's something I need to know about, okay? I mean, that, that affects me. I am awake. What? Hello, welcome to Growth Decay Transformation. I'm Pete. And I'm Courtney. And this is our Breaking Bad Rewatch Retrospective Podcast. We've already done a short introductory episode to explain why we decided to do this type of series and why we wanted to do it right now. And I think you should go listen to that before you listen to this episode if you haven't already, because it does give you a lot of more information about what we're trying to do here. But as I said, I'm Pete Peppers. I make videos on my YouTube channel of the same name, and I love TV. That's really what this podcast is about, because sometimes it's a love-hate relationship, but not when it comes to this little underdog show, Breaking Bad. This is a one show that I can definitely say that I absolutely love and haven't really gotten tired of, not even 15 years later. 
it was one of the first scripted series that came out on a network that wasn't on anyone's radar at the time. It's one of my favorite shows. And the story of how it came into existence, how the world and the characters and everyone just sort of got sucked into it. If it didn't change television, the television landscape changed with it over its 62 episode run. And these are all things that I can get excited to talk about. The thing about Breaking Bad is it took all the stuff that I liked about TV and it used them. It didn't reinvent the wheel necessarily, but it added its own crucial ingredients and it made something better. So what about you? Who are you and what are you doing here? Hi, I'm Courtney. Uh, Some of you may know me from my YouTube channel, Courtney's Reviews, and I am also a huge fan of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and TV in general. And with the 15th anniversary of the premiere of the pilot episode on January 20th of this year, 2023, and with Better Call Saul having just wrapped up last year, it seemed like a really good time to revisit the series now, now that we have an entire story, a complete story to consider. Now, that being said, you should know that this is going to be a full spoilers podcast. It's intended for people who have seen both shows and already know what happens. So if you're new to the series and you don't want to be spoiled, this is not going to be the right podcast for you. I think you should go and watch these two fantastic series for yourself. And Jim and Aaron have a podcast called Breaking Good that covers Breaking Bad as it aired that you can listen to if you're looking for a companion podcast as you watch for the first time. Then you should come back and listen to us after you've finished. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this. Courtney, can you give us a nice summary of what happens in the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, which premiered on January 20th, 2008, and was written and directed by series creator Vince Gilligan, the only episode he wrote alone? Sure, yeah. So the series begins in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's September 7th, 2008. And that's Walter White, played by Brian Cranston. That's his 50th birthday. And we learn in this episode that Walt is a high school chemistry teacher who works his second job at a car wash. He's married to Skylar, played by Anna Gunn. He has a teenage son who has cerebral palsy, Walter Jr., played by R.J. Mitty, and a surprise baby on the way. After he gets diagnosed with stage three lung cancer and tells no one, he decides to take the offer of a ride-along from his DEA agent brother-in-law, Hank, played by Dean Norris, and a spy as a former student flee the scene of the meth bus that he rides along to. He later approaches that student, Jesse Pinkman, played by Aaron Paul, and they team up to make and sell meth. Walt uh, steals some equipment from his school science lab. They buy an RV to serve as their mobile meth lab. And when they're out uh, cooking, um, Jesse tries to bring in a distributor to help move their product. But then things go awry very quickly. Indeed. Yeah. So we decided that we'll start each episode of our podcast by briefly discussing our overall impressions of the episode. So Pete, what did you think? What are your overall impressions of the pilot? Well, it's a really strong way to start a series. One of the best pilots that I can think of. um, Definitely up on any list of of TV show pilots, I think. Uh, What really stands out to me on the rewatch, though, is what a great job they did introducing this character and how they threaded that needle of making us warm up to him, care about him, you know, sort of be on his side, but then subtly introducing some of the darkness that's there under the surface that we won't pick up on until much later. Walter White has to 
come off as pathetic. He has to be someone that we feel sorry for. But he also has to be capable because otherwise, whenever he goes off and makes all these bad decisions and <laughs> he's out there in the underworld, like this journey that he takes through the criminal underworld, he has to be competent enough for us, like for that to seem plausible, that it's possible that this guy could do that. So he has to be two things. And I think they do a fantastic job of, of, of doing that, you know, of creating that. I mentioned that this is an underdog story, and that's very much how you interact with him in the beginning. You see him as this guy. He's got a, you know, he had a raw deal. He he's not even a smoker, but he got lung cancer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he's 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 someone that you that you're 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 trained to think, hey, this guy he he, he deserves better, and. That's how, you know, you, he, you interact with him as a underdog that you want to root for in spite of all the terrible decisions he makes. And who doesn't love an underdog? And I like how the show itself is kind of in that same, you know, has that same disposition. In some ways, it should have never made it to TV. It should have never <laughs> been as popular as it was. You know, the, the ratings were pretty bad early on. It didn't catch on, you know, naturally like some of these shows that we, we watch now. So it, 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 it's all pretty fantastic, and it makes me really excited to talk about it. Here, here, yeah, I, I completely agree with everything you said. And um, Walt as an underdog is, yeah, someone that, that the audience immediately relates to and you want to see succeed. And plus we get all that behind-the-scenes stuff about him where you see just uh, how life has kicked him around and he just keeps getting one raw deal after another. So we're definitely rooting for him by the end of it. And what really uh, stood out to me in, in this episode, um, certainly on the uh, upon the rewatch, is just how well-established the characters are from the outset and how we're essentially told everything that we really need to know about Walt and, and his world and really his trajectory in this pilot. So um, the growth and decay and transformation of this character are all foreshadowed really beautifully. And I also think that the power dynamics of the show are really, really well conveyed in this pilot episode and uh, among Walt and, and each of his family members. So like how Skylar, his wife, is cast as the one who wears the pants in the family. She organizes the family's finances, um, sort of tells him what to do sort of thing. And then uh, Walt is rather passive, um, at least leading up to his diagnosis, right? He's just kind of like a go-along to get-along kind of guy. And then you have Hank, who, you know, the foil of the show um, to Walt is this hyper-masculine character. And also, of course, Jesse and Walt's power dynamics. But really, the, the gender gender dynamics are what really stood out to me upon rewatching it and specifically like the role of, of masculinity. And so we see how Walt's masculinity is like constantly challenged throughout this, this episode, but he starts to reclaim his power in several important ways. And there are three key moments, I think in this episode. So um, the first at the car wash, when he quits the car wash and he grabs himself, you know, after Wipe uh, down this. Yeah, exactly. And Bogdan's trying to get him to to go outside and and uh, do wipe downs. And then um, at the clothing store where uh, they're picking out new pants for Walter Jr. And these uh, teenage kids start making fun of Walter Jr., you know, making fun of him, needing to try on his big boy pants and stuff like that. And then Walt comes in and, and um, you know, confronts that kid and... 
he, uh, you know, he's taking his power back in that moment and, and asserting himself. And then uh, finally at the end of the episode, right, in bed with Skylar, that's how the episode closes when he flips her over. So they're not even in like missionary position. It's a power move. And uh, so much so that where she's like, Walter, is that you? You know? <laughs> <laughs> is that you? And it, and it's interesting because not really right that that in that one episode in the the one hour of tv um he becomes someone else and and that really underlines that at the end and and i i do i, I agree with all of what you're saying there i do find those to be to be really important things one thing that stands out uh knowing how all these characters develop is is you know i i said i think it's one of the best pilots of all time and and i and i stand by that where it, it does come up short a little bit, I think, is with these other characters. There, mm-hmm. Walt is so so well um, developed and and just so compelling. It kind of makes the rest of them all look uh, a little. I mean, I I find Hank, uh, you know, Hank was was completely uninteresting in a way. I mean, he was annoying. You know, he he seemed like. Who is this guy? Nobody really acts like that, but yeah, they do. So that's that's super <laughs> terrible and annoying, at you know. And um, Jesse, he 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 wasn't he he's not compelling in the way that he ends up being. Um, but yeah, so I think what you see in this last minute, in 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 with the hindsight of having watched the whole series, is yeah, these things aren't aren't perfect but they do they are really effective at making the points they're supposed to make hank is is over he's overdrawn in a way um and that is because he is the opposite of what walter white is he you know and and almost every point and every every way you can think of and as you mentioned you know with his with with walt's his connection to his son and the way that his son looks up to Hank, mm-hmm. we see that right from the very beginning, how that that's something that, that really bothers him. It, it's something it's a dark, there's something dark in there. And um, yeah, it's, I, I think that that last part where we see him, you know, his first change, his first, the first place where we see that he's, cause he's, he's confronted with this situation where he got away with, what they were doing, he, he, you know, he, he killed people as far yeah. as he knows. Um, none of this is stuff that you run into in your day as a high school chemistry teacher. <laughs> like he's in a brand new world and he went through a, a process of, it starts a process, I should say, I guess, of these dominoes falling, this cascading effects that are going to happen because of this one decision he makes. Mm-hmm. And so so to see him, like you said, take control, it really is kind of triumphant instead of, you know, what what it, what it will turn out to be. Uh, it really feels kind of triumphant, like, hell yeah, this guy is is all right with me, you know? Yeah, sure. And of course, I mean, I feel like we should probably note that it's like the illusion of control, right? So he's feeling powerful in his life, but there's, um, there's high moments and low moments. So anytime things start to go his way, uh, there's always a dark moment, right? So like, Mm -hmm. he, they, they get the RV, things are going well, they make the meth. And of course, Crazy Eight and Emilio come up and then things get a little bit out of control. Um, But, but the, 
I think a lot of what we're sort of circling around is Walt's perception of himself. And I think that's also really important in how this episode is written and directed. So you just noted that you don't think of some of the other characters are as well um, conceived or, or developed as Walt is. And of course, I mean, he is our, our main character in this episode. And um, as uh, as you noted also, this was the first episode that Vince Gilligan wrote all by himself. And uh, he has later you know, talked about how it was... Uh, to everyone's credit, that he got uh, a writer's team to, to help, you know, flesh out some of these points and details and things like that. But thinking of, of uh, sympathizing also with, with Walter White's point of view as the underdog, we're being shown a very specific point of view, and it is Walt's point of view. Um, and I think that towards the end of the series that starts to unravel a little bit, like hopefully viewers start to become a little bit more uh, objective as they're watching him and really seeing that what he has presented and what we've been presented has been his idea of himself. And it's not exactly like the kind of guy that he presents himself to be. And on that point, there are a couple of like visual cues. I just wanted to point out really quickly that stood out to me upon rewatching that. I don't think I really noticed the first time I watched and uh, that's in the the nursery in their house in Holly's room, which is a converted office. And mm-hmm. uh, we see um, in in like the first uh, shot after the the teaser, the cold open of the episode, we see him get up in the morning and he's on his little sad step climber climber thing. And we see like the diapers and the crib and all that stuff getting prepared for the birth of the baby. And we get a shot of like I think it's like a box of some kind, and it says safety first. On it, and it lingers. The camera lingers just long enough for for you to notice it. And then later in the clothing store scene that I already talked about, the name of that clothing store is Family First. So we get these ideas that Walt is a, a practical, sensible person that he believes in in safety and family and stuff like that. We also get that when in that exchange with Jesse, when they're at Jesse's house loading up the trunk with all of the equipment and stuff like that, and he's talking about how they're going to wear safety gear and eye goggles and have um, an eye wash. It'll be safety first. So it's this illusion of control and this illusion of this man who is a safe, cautious man. And uh, as Gus Fring will later tell him, you are not a cautious man, you know, but uh, I think we start to sort of realize that a little bit, especially looking at the rewatching this, he's he makes a lot of mistakes and he's not as cautious or as sensible as he likes to think he is. Which is which is 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 all of us, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. what's compelling about it is. You know, we think of ourselves in a way the world sees us in a different way. And then somewhere in between all of that is the truth of who we are. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting take that those characters were, were, we're essentially seeing them the way that Walter White sees them. Not exactly. The way that they are yet. And, and that makes sense, especially as we've said that this is Vince writing, just the the pilot and and the you know he has this idea in his mind that he wants to make a tv show where the character changes but the the full trajectory hasn't been hasn't been figured out they don't you know he's 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 trying to thread that needle that i mentioned earlier of making us like the character making us root for the character but also saying hey you know there's some other stuff going on here that you might want to you want to check out as we get to know him a little bit better. Yeah. 
You're listening to Growth Decay Transformation. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's get cooking. We're back with more Growth Decay Transformation. So with that said, let's go back to the beginning and this talk about this idea of the pre-credits teaser and uh, you know the cold open and how it sets the tone not just for the episode but the entire show because this isn't something that was new. TV shows had done these sorts of things. Um, soap operas, I think, especially did this. And, you know, they also were in, you know, you also hear a lot of stuff about Breaking Bad being serialized. That also is something that um, soap operas were doing for a long time and with great success to their, their target demo. This is, uh, I think, the thing about, cold opens and teasers when you talk about Breaking Bad and then later ba- Better Call Saul is that they did them better than anyone else. And mm-hmm. and this is uh, not something that I thought about the first time I watched it, but something that did absolutely work. I, it asks a question, who is this guy? Why is he in this situation? And um, then it goes and it answers some of that, which is a good sign. It makes you think like, okay, well, you gotta, you have to pay attention to the, you have to pay attention to what's happening in this show, and it feels like it might actually pay off. You don't really know because at this time, TV doesn't have a great track record of that. Yeah. I don't think. Um, visually, it sets up a lot of the visual language for the show that they'll, they'll stick to it. It, it has a, this, one of the things that's great about the show is the way that it looks and the way that it feels it, 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 it develops the world visually. That was sort of what I was talking about with the tidy whities before. And you get all of that within this first opening teaser. Yeah, you absolutely do. And it's, I, I think of the landscape. I think of Albuquerque, um, the Sandia Mountains, that whole desert landscape as being a, a really integral character in the show itself. And um, I think when I first watched it, it's one of the things that, that initially grabbed me about it because it was different. It was unique. It's filmed on scene, right? So you have this sort of almost cinema verite like uh, aspect to it that you did not really see in a lot of TV shows at the time, for sure. And uh, again, as you were just talking about the the cold open, Pete, I was thinking about again, like how it sets the the tone, not just for like uh, the action and um, the the visual landscape of it, but also uh, 
speaking again to a little bit about how Walter sees himself. So I'm thinking specifically of the moment when he grabs Jesse's camcorder and he's recording himself. Um, and he, he says, you know, this is a message for my wife and my son. And he tells them, I, you're going to find out some things about me, but you should know I only ever did this for you. I had you in my heart the whole time. And again, there's that sort of self-delusion, uh, hinted at in the very first couple minutes of the entire series, I think is so interesting, right? And he's like, you know, he has this this personal narrative of of himself and who he is. And, you know, he's the good guy. He can't be the bad guy. Yeah. And, and that's that's a good place to to uh, start when we we think about him. Who is this guy? Because he's a little bit it's a little bit hard to to put it together in the in the very beginning. Um, the one thing that I, I guess that that we see for sure is that he has a passion for for chemistry. There's two mm-hmm. moments in this episode where you see him really look alive and engaged and and just excited, and they both are directly related to chemistry. He when he's given the the speech to his students about what chemistry is, where we got the name for this podcast, the growth decay transformation. He, nobody's listening to him. He, he's not really getting through. He's not effective in his, his role there. And, but you could see that it's, he still has that spark when he's talking, when he, when he's, when he's giving this, when he's putting that out there. And the other time that you see it, um, is whenever he's talking about the glassware that he stole from from the um, high school that he's he's showing it to Jesse who Jesse isn't isn't impressed at all but he's he's like he's really fired up about that round bottom flask you know he he just <laughs> he's just is like you know and 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 that's and I I really like that I really like the way those things come through at this point you know in my relationship with the show as like because all right so he he's supposed to be pathetic right i mean yeah that's what we're supposed to get from from all of this stuff the stair climber nothing glamorous about that um waking up he wakes up before the alarm goes off he he just seems uh you know aim uh, like beyond beyond just what the reality of things like he he, he has a low-paying job um he has to take a second job all of that stuff but I mean, just even in his in his personal details, the car he drives, the mm-hmm. the the clothes he wears, it's all it's all pretty forgettable stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think he's very much painted, and as you say, this way meant to be sort of pathetic. So he he wakes up early. It's his fiftieth birthday, right? And um, you know, in that that first shot, I talked a little bit about already when he's on the little stair climber thing, we see on the wall that there's a plaque that was given to him from contributing to research on like uh, some sort of chemistry project that he was working on that that led to a Nobel Prize. And, um, you know, then he's he goes to the breakfast table and his wife is making them eat veggie bacon, which Junior tells us smells like band-aids, you know, and he's one got a little f- bit of... One of the funniest lines of, of the uh, pilot episode. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, so it's just kind of like sad. It's his birthday and like he's eating this this gross bacon or whatever. And um, his son is giving them um, 
giving them some I, I guess uh, he's upset that the water heater isn't working so again we get a sense of like the financial struggles that they're they're mm -hmm. dealing with the, the lack of um hot water in the house and um skylar i think it's at this scene where she tells him that you know she asked what time he'll be home and she's like i don't want him dicking you around talking about Bogdan at the car wash like she wants him home at, at this exact time so you get this this sense of him that that he's he works hard and uh he he's doing the best that he can and um as I said earlier just sort of rolling with the punches he's just kind of going through life like there's really not much exciting going on for him until we see him in the classroom and he is talking about chemistry as you were just uh, describing Pete and he's he just gives it he gives the definition of chemistry and um, that that moment really stood out to me uh, because it's also telling us, the viewers, how we can watch the show. This is a study of change. You're going to watch yeah. this man change. We're going to watch him grow, decay, transform. And I love the, the line that he says at the end of that little spiel. He goes, it's fascinating. And then we see the rest of the classroom and they're not paying attention at all. So it's nobody's not interested fascinating in, to them. <laughs> yeah, nobody's interested in this man. And we're shown a man, as you were saying, is very, for, you know, sort of forgettable. He's bland. His clothing is bland. He doesn't really stand out at his birthday party he is not the star of the show at all hank dominates the conversation but uh just wait and see because he is going to become very fascinating right it is fascinating to watch this transformation take place over the next uh you know 62 episodes and that's one of the things that i i look forward to uh talking about as we go as we go through them because it it does change after you know how the story ends um we, you know, in the beginning, we do, we do root for him. And by the end, not so much. So when you watch it again, it, that, that, that veil has been lifted. We know who he, he is pretty much, but it doesn't make his character any less interesting or compelling. And, um, it's funny because one of the things, one of the things TV has always done is it, when something works, because I guess if we, you know, if we talk about like the network system when there was only a handful of networks and um, they were all competing for the same ad, you know, those those high uh, visibility ad times or, or whatever, however they do that. One show would come out and it would be novel in a way that really caught people's attention. So everybody else would copy that. So you'd have like the the three three different versions of the same story, and uh, that's how that's what viewers got to choose between. And so part of the part of the the thing that came out of this era of TV, the, what you would call the golden this golden age of of television, was this type of character man who. Um, you know, was, was an anti-hero started out as an anti-hero. And, um, so it, it, it got done to death and people are kind of tired of that. But one of the things that this show is one of the ways that this show stands out to me, even, even now is that it's not so much that it is, uh, it's celebrating him. It doesn't, it doesn't celebrate this, this transformation of, 
into his worst self and, and him getting what he wants through through being a terrible person, through violence no, and, and everything I mean, else. Yeah, I mean, to your point, he loses everything, right? Like, we get to see real time the consequences and the fallout of his choices. Yeah, so it's more of a... I don't know how to... What's the best word for it? Like, it, it takes it apart. It looks at the situation. It's not even a little bit political as far as TV shows go. It's really just being a television show, a character-based exploration of this of this archetype, and I think it's I think it just it's just a lot better than than what many of the um, the other ones, even the other really good ones, are in comparison. Yeah, yeah. So I, you mentioned this this golden age of of television, and um, we we've uh, done a little bit of research into this. And so at the that this critical time period in the two thousands, right, which is it really a lot of scholars that have talked about it sort of cite the late nineties going up to about um, twenty ten, early twenty tens, uh, where we had this revolution, the second golden age in television. And um, you know there were a lot of different things that that had to fall into place for this to happen. So we had the move from analog to digital television, right? So like we had higher quality TVs and um, flat screens and HD TVs coming in and all that. Uh, and so that all helped contribute it contribute to, the, uh, I think, the success of, of this particular show and why it made it possible for them to create what they did with this. And then, of course, also with like the advent of like Netflix really helping it and stuff like that. But I, I tend to agree with you, Pete, that they do it better than anyone else. Um, I think The Sopranos are great, don't get me wrong, but that's HBO and HBO has bigger budgets. You know, they've always been able to produce bigger, better things. And then, of course, um, AMC, uh, they Mad Men came out in what 2007 so it was a year before the Breaking Bad premiere and I was listening to an interview with Vince Gilligan he was uh, talking to the Writers Guild in 2010 and he was talking about how uh, his his process of pitching uh, Breaking Bad to the different networks and pretty much everyone turned them down right uh, mm -hmm. a couple of them liked it but they couldn't they couldn't uh, you know go go forward with it so he told this really funny story really quickly about um, TNT and how when he met with the two execs there they were like in love with it they were going crazy and they're like there's no way we can buy this show we'll get fired and they're like unless <laughs> you make him can we make him not be a meth cook can we have him like be a counterfeiter or something and then but but Vince fortunately for all of us you know stuck to his guns and he was like no i really want it to be this way so he had conceived it in a very particular way and i'm glad he was able to find amc but when he met with amc and because uh, at the time they had not started uh filming Mad Men yet like Mad Men had not come out when he first met with them to pitch yeah, it i believe they i believe they they had they owned uh Mad Men. that was mm -hmm. their first scripted show but they hadn't even started making it yet whenever they brought breaking bad when they bought Breaking, or, you know, decided to go with them, which is pretty amazing when you think about it now. Yeah, exactly. And so when Vince tells the story about meeting with them, you know, he thought it was a complete, like, joke, right? And so he agreed to meet with them just because he wanted to get uh, a couple free scotches at the hotel bar, you know? Figured, like, mm -hmm. you know, they pick up the tab or whatever. And uh, and he was like, but in his mind, he said uh, that he thought he would probably have better luck pitching Breaking Bad to the cooking channel, you know, since it's a show about cooking. So yeah, it's... Uh, 
it's really interesting about like what was happening in the landscape at that particular moment, though, to make all of these really great shows possible. And I think with Breaking Bad, and I don't really want to talk so much about the other shows and you know dissect those as much here, but I think one of the things with Breaking Bad that it has this sort of universal appeal, right? It became really popular globally. So it's not um, only relevant to Americans, right? Uh, or even relevant to its time period. So I recently re uh, watched Sopranos actually for the first time because I did not watch it when it was on air. And I really mm. enjoyed it. I think it's a really well-made show. It's great and everything, but I don't know that I would want to rewatch it. Where with Breaking Bad, I keep returning to it over and over again. So I think it has this, uh, this, this staying power, right? Like Just like how you would revisit your favorite film or reread a favorite book. I think it's one of those things that, that holds up over time. Yeah, and a lot of what you're saying there about the the network situation and some of the different things that happened as they as this sh that that made that were essential in this show coming to to the TV and becoming what it was at the time. They're all it's all pretty fascinating too. There's a there's a, a nice parallel between Walter's decision and how things like he doesn't become just a, an evil character overnight. He he makes a decision and there's this cascade of 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 things that happens as you know like i think i mentioned earlier you know dominoes the dominoes start to fall and and it the show itself kind of has that same same backstory when you really dig into it they're coming to a network that that has this trying to make a name for itself and and it it's just um it's just a, a matter of luck that they, they, they're just hands off with it. They just say, okay, th this is what you want to make. We'll let you make it. Cause that doesn't really seem to happen anywhere else ever. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, whenever David Lynch made the return, Twin Peaks, the return, they let him do whatever he wanted there. Um, but for the most part, it doesn't sound like that's, that's, that's typical. And um, in this case, it really made it sound a lot better. And one of my favorite stories about that is the way that we uh, we had talked about how the the the, the ratings weren't great at first. Mm -hmm. And one of those one of those one of those funny uh, circumstances is that they had originally planned to air this after the NFC Championship game, which is the second most popular football game on TV all year only behind the, the Super Bowl. So they're they're really expecting that they're going to get this male viewership demographic that's really important to them to already be on and they'll just transition from watching the game into watching this brand new show that they've been promoting. And it turns out that the game went into overtime and it's like <laughs> super rare. Like it only yeah. happened a few times in the history of of the NFL. And and so if they did, if they did do what they were hoping would happen, they they came into the show fifteen minutes late or something like that, and and it just goes to show, you know how 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 things have to sort of break the right way for a show, and and then it just it just turns out that this show was so good that even when they broke the wrong way, it was able to have such a strong lead character he went out and and won some emmys uh for his performance and and that was enough to keep it on the air long enough until people caught up and 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 you know got to got to get sucked in like we all have at this point right 
Yeah, that is, that's funny though about the football game. What I was going to say, I've already kind of talked about it, the role that Netflix really, really played in helping to promote the show. And so AMC, of course, pushes back against that a little bit, but even Vince Gilligan himself has, you know, credited Netflix for the major boost that the series got. So they um, put the first uh, four seasons on ahead of the fifth season airing on AMC. And I was one of those people that discovered Breaking Bad through Netflix. Like I was already aware of it being on, but it was already in the third or fourth season when people in my circle, my networks were talking about it. And I didn't have a DVR at the time. So I didn't really have a way to catch up with it. Um, I guess maybe they were showing like uh, marathons or something like, like AMC does on weekends. Yeah, I on think weekends. they did, but that's not exactly convenient unless you yeah. VHS or, or, or DVR the whole thing when it's on. Yeah. So being able to get caught up on Netflix was, was huge. Uh, and really I think helped to drive some of that success, but it also already had like word of mouth cred at that point. Like it was a critical darling. So Pete, you mentioned some of the, the Emmys and the pilot was nominated for a bunch and they won two. So Brian Cranston actually won an Emmy for his performance in the pilot episode. And Lynn Willingham, uh, the, the, uh, the editor, sorry, the editor of the episode also won an Emmy for her work on this particular uh, episode. And so when we were, we were talking, just to backtrack a little bit, talking about the, the, the golden age of television, one of the other really, I think, interesting things about Breaking Bad was the sort of talent that they were able to pull in behind the scenes for this, like, you know, unknown network show. So like having John Toll as a cinematographer on the pilot is is really, I think, exciting and interesting and in, in what they were able yeah, to he, do with TV. He's the only person to win back-to-back Oscars, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, for uh, Braveheart and Legends of the Fall. Back to back. I mean, that's not yeah. th- that's not nothing. That's for yeah. sure. And this was his first time uh, working on TV, I believe. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. The thing that's surprising about this when you watch it is is only is not how how great it is, but it's how much they even how much better they even get over the 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 the. the as the seasons go on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- like they, they, they start at a really high point as far as craft is is concerned, and and they just improve season over season, and this goes on all the way through B- Better Call Saul for for that matter. And yeah, they 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 did really start out with a a, a bunch of talented people, and it, it really comes through even in this first episode that we're talking about right now just really quickly the uh, the talk about the the um the viewership the pilot had 1.4 million viewers and by the time they got around to season five that had six million you know 5.92 million so that was also doubling the number from the year before that for season four. So there was definitely a big boost after I think the first three seasons went on Netflix and people were able to binge them and get caught up. So obviously that just kept happening over that next year. So yeah, there was a huge boost to them being, uh, being available there. And the other thing about it is the writer's strike in their first episode, their first season was was supposed to be nine episodes long. That was the order after the, the they bought the pilot. 
And because the writer strike, the writers guild strike happened mid season, they had to cut it short to, to episode seven. And that had a big impact on the actual story. So that that's pretty fascinating too, when you think about it, because if they had done what they were planning on doing, it probably wouldn't be the same show. It, it wouldn't have followed the same trajectory. It might've got to the same place, but it would made, it would have made a big difference, I think. Um, yeah, sure. Let's unpack that a little bit for maybe listeners that don't know what you're talking about. So uh, what Vince had intended to do with the end of season one before season two, but then the writer's strike happened and they had to, they had more time to work on it. Yeah, I think most people know that that Jesse was initially supposed to be killed off in the first season and they changed their mind whenever Aaron Paul turned out to be a really strong actor and they really liked him in the role. The other thing that there is, and, and I guess this is something we're going to have to figure out as we go on, and hopefully our fans will, our listeners, you know, they'll 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 send us emails and let us know how much of this is 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 stuff that they want to hear because we're there. There's a ton of information about these shows are so popular and and they have such a you know strong. Um, in, there's been such a strong interest in them for so long. There's a lot of information out there. Some people may not have heard some of this stuff before, and we don't want to just, you know, hit the most popular points that people have. So we'll just have to get a feeling for that as we go on. But one of the things about the first season, like when they already had, when it was already in process and they were, they were getting ready to write those scripts for episode eight and episode nine, the plan was to have Steve Gomez, Hank's partner, get killed in the final episode. Mm -hmm. And then that would be, and I think it would be from Tuco. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that part for sure, but that would put Walt in a situation where he has to, he wants to help him, but he can't because it'll expose his identity. So he would have another one of these choices there at the end. And, and from what I understand, there's supposed to be this home invasion uh, where, Tuco breaks into Walt's house and takes his family hostage. And the series and the season, if I, I might be mixing it up a little bit, but the season was supposed to end with Walt walking down the street, walking down an alley with blood all over him and sirens mm -hmm. going off in the background. And you're wondering like, how is he going to get out of this? So it's a, it's a much different feeling to, to the ending that we actually got there. Yeah, it is. And um, we, Pete and I, we spoke a little bit about this off um, off air, you know, uh, ahead of, of recording this podcast about um, how fortuitous things were for not just like the landscape of what was happening in TV and networks and all that at that exact moment, but how like these little things like the writer's strike uh, actually ended up serving the show in the long run and Aaron Paul being such a wonderful actor that they decided to keep him around and uh, other things like that. And um, something that I only recently found out, I don't know if this is common knowledge or not, but there was an interview with Brian Cranston on James Corden's show a couple weeks ago he's promoting um his his show your honor i think it's called the one where he plays the judge and he told this story about how uh he had the two final scripts of the series and he had gone to go hike uh the sandia mountains so he had his car parked out in the middle of the desert and when he came back uh someone had broken into his car and stolen the two scripts <laughs> so uh 
this news got out, right? So he, Brian Cranston, had to call the the police and you know file a report, and then someone leaked the the phone call, like the recording of him leaving this message. So it became like a you know a, a pretty big news story at the time, and. Vince Gilliam was so paranoid that he actually changed the the final two episodes. Now, I don't know how much he changed them, like what details he changed, but he was so afraid of it leaking that he made some considerable changes to those those final two episodes. But that being said, I think the finale was pretty perfect. I, I, I'm, there's, there's two things that I, I'm going to be keeping an eye on as I go through this um, again. And that is the idea that Walt is has always been Heisenberg and mm-hmm. it just comes out because of the way that it, that it happens. It's sort of the, the, the most popular idea about what's going on in this series at the end, you know, after people watched it all and, and then how the, the finale, like the finale is certainly fun. It was like when I watched it the first time, it was, it was absolutely, it felt satisfying. It felt fun. To, like it's a great hour of television I I I did also kind of have that feeling like, well, wait, wait a minute. Like Walt got everything he wanted mm-hmm. at the end too. Like when he's able to get the money to the family and everything. Like I, I was a little torn on that, especially after the fact. So one, that's one of the things that, that I'll be thinking about as we go through this. How that? I mean, because it it does make sense and it and it's satisfying. It's just like, is it maybe a little too clean, a little too too satisfying in a way? You know, like too did they do a, a little bit too much to try to make everything, you know, like it, it, cause I, I guess by the time that we got there, I was done with Walter. I wanted to see him die. You know, I wanted to see him lose and he does die, but he doesn't necessarily lose. So it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. Sure. Back through. Yeah. And he absolutely gets to die on his own terms. Right. I mean, he's, yeah, up against cancer, of course, uh, and everything. So uh, his time is marked anyway. And we know that from the very first episode, from the pilot episode, that this is a marked man. And um, But he does... Yeah, he was uh, always going to die. So exactly. dying isn't, isn't a big deal. Exactly. And I know um, what you're what you're speaking about now, there's been a lot of discussion um, retrospectively, right? Like, uh, yeah. did he get off too easy? I know this is something that Vince has talked a lot about recently, like thinking back um, like uh, on how they ended the series. Should there have been a harsher, uh, should there have been harsher consequences for Walt? Uh, he gets off too easy, so on and so forth. But I can remember, I clearly remember watching the finale for the, the very first time and being completely satisfied. Now, like you, Pete, I think one of the things I'm most interested in in revisiting this is seeing how much my feelings about Walt have changed, how much my ideas about the series and the trajectory and everything have have changed and evolved. Because we have this whole universe now, certainly I think Better Call Saul adds a lot of context, especially how that series ended and the sort of new narrative that they've added to it in our understanding, especially of Walt. Um, But also looking at it from 2023 versus watching it, you know, 10, 15 years ago or whatever. Of course, knowing how it ends, right? That's going to color the way we think of him. So you you sort of hinted a little bit at, at probably the biggest debate about the series. Was he always bad or does he turn bad? And I think... Um, that's that's going to be something really exciting to explore. My ideas about this change kind of constantly, and and I I keep coming back though to the line "growth, decay, transformation," and uh, was was this guy always bad? And we just see him be revealed to be this you know monster 
for want of a better word, that he really is? Or do circumstances and time change him into that? So uh, I think in the pilot, we don't get necessarily a sense of that monstrosity just yet. But we do get some, I think it's certainly hinted at. There's some foreshadowing of that, like how easy it is for him to lie. You know, and how, um, especially at the end when um, he kills Emilio and, you know, that's like an existential thing <laughs> when you kill someone that, that you're faced with this thing that you've done. Now, of course, like you can argue that this was in self-defense and it absolutely was. It was him or him and Jesse or them. Right. So he did what he had to do to protect himself. But I think we really get a sense of just how corrupt he is or the potential for corruption by how turned on he is by that. So like he uh, goes home and that's that final scene with Skylar in bed. It's, it's uh, erotic for him. And I don't think it's necessarily like, you know, he's, it's like a sexual thing as much as it is a power thing. So he's really yeah. feeling powerful for the first time in a very, very long time. Um, power. I mean, what's more powerful than, than power over death. Right. So he yeah. himself and that, and is, that is what he, that is what he lacks in, in, in his life in the beginning and in his situation with the cancer diagnosis. That's, he has no power over that at all. There's, he can, it, it's, it's, it's laid out and he, and he reiterates it for us as the audience that he has maybe two years at best if he does the chemo. And there's nothing he can do to change that as far as we know what you're saying about power is, is something that's going to come up over and over again. Earlier you mentioned when you were talking um, about how Walt is drawn, right. And thinking in terms of power, uh, you don't think that the other characters are as well drawn in this episode. And I was just curious, like if, if you, if you would tell us a little bit more about your ideas about the individual characters, about the relationships between Walt and his wife and his son and his in-laws and Jesse there's a lot that this that any pilot of any TV show has to do and and I and I just want to make it before I talk about that I guess I just want to say that I think they made the right decision to focus primarily on Walt and giving giving us what he is so you're asking like what are were my impressions of the characters or you know at the time as watching the pilot or or what exactly do you are you looking for my biggest impression from watching this episode were those relationships and the power dynamics and how power okay. is like, I think really the, the sort of overarching theme of this episode. So it's like someone who feels very emasculated, very powerless, who starts to reclaim his power and then specifically how that, that plays out in his interpersonal relationships. Yeah. And, and I think you do see that in, in between him and Skylar, which is something that that's more relatable, I think, than than necessarily like maybe his his connection to to that we'll learn more about with um, Hank and Marie and 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 the other members of the family. She gets a bad rap for for being overbearing by fans who who don't like her. But there's also a question of like, did how did how did that how did that develop? Like, has he? Because, you know, there's also the question of how did he become a teacher in the first place? Because there's he seemed to have a brighter future. You know, that that plaque on the wall that you see uh, that you brought up earlier, that that says that he he contributed to a project that won a Nobel Prize. And then he at some point he makes a decision to become a high school teacher and he and he and he leaves all of that behind. So I think with with Skylar we're we're meant to think that 
maybe she is 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 worse than than because of that idea that you mentioned earlier about we're seeing it through Walter's pers- you know like we're seeing it from Walter's perspective. She seems a little overbearing, but you know he he's not he's not taking uh, he's passive. And so when you're in a relationship with with that kind of person, someone has to sort of take over. If there's not a sharing of 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 that, and if there's not a dynamic of like we're both in this together, and or there's not the dynamic of I'm in charge and and you have to do what I say, then you know somehow that has to work itself out, right? Yeah, yeah, and I I think that's that's such a great point that you know he lacks initiative, and so I agree that Skylar gets a really bad rap, but again, you know that's that's how we're, we're you know she's presented to us, right? And it's it's Walt's point of view, so he's he's very passive. And um, there are a couple of things that, that certainly stand out in this episode. So uh, the, the very sad hand job, you know, in yeah. bed at night and she's on the computer uh, on eBay. Right. And they're talking very casually about, uh, you know, like what they're going to do for the weekend. She needs him to paint. He wants to go see this uh, exhibit on like the Mars Rover photographs or whatever. And, you know, there she's giving him this very sad hand job and it's there's it's so aromantic um, and it's very like almost transactional in terms of like, you know, she's actually trying to sell something at the moment. Yeah. Uh, she's on eBay Literally trying to. Transactional. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't forget your pants. We'll be back after this short break. Fire up the RV. We're back with more growth decay transformation. But the fact that she's pregnant lets us know that there is there are moments of intimacy in their relationship. And of course, even though this is kind of a pathetic way to end his birthday, um, it is there are the, those moments of connection. But yeah, in this episode, I, I very much get the sense that Skylar is very mothering, right? She mothers him a lot. She's telling, asking him if he took mm-hmm. his echinacea. You know, we're watching our cholesterol with the veggie bacon. Um, we don't use the credit card, right, after he uses it to go buy a printer paper. You know, she's she's very much the one that, I mean, again, for, for want of a better word, think of her as very much like a mother figure. And I, I think that mm-hmm. was something that was deliberate, not just in his relationship um, with with the relationship between Skylar and Walt, but we're very much meant to view her as the mother. Of course, she's pregnant. And so you have, I mean, what's more motherly than being pregnant, at least in terms of visual representation. And mm-hmm. she's this like stay at home mom. And that's I not guess... necessarily a healthy adult relationship. If, no. If your yeah. partner is your mother or your, or your father, if the, if the, if it was, re, you know, if it was rearranged there. Yeah, but you also, but you do, you do get the sense that he's providing, right? So like he's yeah. working these sort of lackluster jobs, right? He's teaching, not, I don't mean, to, I'm a teacher myself, so this is not to speak kill of teachers, right? I think it is a very honorable profession, but he's not respected. Uh, yeah. And he's, he's sort of squandering his talents, right? Like, because he, we know that he's capable of doing great things in his actual field, but instead he's mm-hmm. talking to a bunch of teenagers who don't care about what he's talking about. And then working at the car wash so we get the sense of him doing what needs to be done in order to provide but uh and and the question you raised about like what led him to do this why didn't he go on to do greater things i think is is a a really interesting one to ponder like what actually were the conditions that led up to this we're never actually explicitly told why he got into teaching high school versus maybe at you know going into a university or working elsewhere after leaving gray matter uh 
But again, I think this is uh, to sort of feed into Walt's narrative, right? Like he's doing what has to be done. He's, you know, working these, um, I guess, like he's not appreciated in what he's doing, but he's doing it because he's got to do it to provide. And this, uh, this idea he has of himself as providing for his family is one that he carries on as he starts doing more and more ridiculous, outlandish, dangerous criminal things, right? I'm doing this to provide for my family. Yeah. And, and it's important. It, this is an important point because it, it is, it's an absurd premise for a television show that a mild mannered chemistry teacher decides to become a meth kingpin. It really is. It mm-hmm. It's not something that is easy to buy into in a way, you know, you hear it and you think, oh, that's ridiculous. But then when you watch it, and especially through this episode we're talking about right now, they're able to make it seem plausible, right? He's the the thing about it is is that he's underappreciated. Mm-hmm. We don't know how much of that is his fault, but it's relatable. And I think that one of the things, because you don't you don't just you just don't come out of you don't you just don't wake up one day and and everything and just make a decision to say you know what I'm going to be completely passive. I'm going to let pa- life pass me by. I'm going to. I'm going to settle into this life of mediocrity and and that's it. You know, I feel great about it. it it's something that happens over time. It, it's something that develops. And because he's faced with this inciting incident that he has cancer, he has to face that. And the reality that this will be the only thing that that he he'll he'll be remembered for, right? Is that he he didn't do much. He uh you know, he 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 didn't live up to his potential that's what other people see. And that's, and then you have that internal dialogue that, that, that thought the the way he sees himself that we were talking about earlier, but, but what's, but what's fascinating in a, in a way is that you could see how he could talk himself into all these things because he's doing what you're supposed to do. It's a noble profession. Yes. He doesn't get paid that much money, but it's a job that needs done and he does it. You know, maybe he's not the best. Maybe he's not getting through to these students, but Somebody has to go there and do this, and he does that. And he doesn't make enough money, so he has a second job at the car wash. Not everyone would do that. He does. You know, so these decisions that he makes and the way that he ended up the way he was, it, it, it's really, it's a really, and used the word dissection earlier, it jumped out on me. It's, it's really an interesting dissection of these of this kind of person. And it, and it's weird to talk about it because, and this came up when we were talking about um, Kim, when she was in Florida in better call Saul, it's weird to talk about that because you're like, you're saying, Oh, this is so pathetic. This guy, he drives this, this car and he has these bad clothes and everything else. And, and he's just average. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with anybody who does any of those things. You know what I mean? So it's kind of weird. It's like, well, yeah, that's a good job. Actually, it doesn't pay as much as it should, but it's still it's it's responsible. It's a thing that you do. So I I don't want to say that, you know, I don't want people to uh, feel bad whenever we talk about it. But we're just in this particular thing, like what the show's going for is it's giving us this guy who he could have been something else. And he got to this place and then he finds out that, you know, hey, I don't I'm going to be I got to take it out of here. I'm going to, to be gone I'm not going to leave anything by, behind for my family. I have to do something, right? And so it's uh, it's fantastic. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. So yeah, this idea of him working a thankless job and everything. And um, again, uh, I think you said this really eloquently, and it is a really important point, Pete, that like, this isn't to say that teaching is a bad, you know, um, job to have or anything like that. You know, he's living a life that millions of people live, right? Um, and better than than a lot of people uh, around the world. So on the surface, there's really not much wrong with his life, you know, but it's really, again, this is his point of view. And mm -hmm. we later learned that, um, you know, he was capable of so much more. And I think that's part of you know, his, his uh, hubris. And once he, you know, sort of wakes up, right, um, and starts to want to live up to this potential, leave a legacy, it's less about all of the things that he's told himself he's doing this for. Like, I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And he just starts doing things for himself. Yeah. And it all works out perfectly. And everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's so much more we could say about this episode, but in the interest of time, we're going to move now to our next segment. And this is when Pete and I talk about what our favorite line and our favorite shot of the episode is. So Pete, do you want to start? Tell us what your favorite line in this episode was. Well, you, you kind of just were, were touching on it. And it's definitely I'm awake when he says that. I love how this feels like it's sort of a look behind the curtain of how Walt sees himself, that thing we've been talking about over and over again, and the situation that he finds himself in, like the way he reacts to that. It, it's one of those things, it, it makes me think about that idea that everyone is the hero of their own story because he's talking about being awake and that obviously implies that he was asleep and he's he's coming around to this idea that he's kind of wasted his life or whatever, but it's like this really, you know, fantastic, view of it of like oh well i just had to wake up and now i can and now i can do this thing and i can and i can fix everything and i can go out like a hero it, it's really it's really relatable and it's also just kind of funny the way that it, it comes off and and jesse really under does a great job of underlining that in the way he reacts by saying what you know like yeah. what, what are you talking about but it's it it's just one of those little ideas it's one of those little nods to like this is this is Walt's story and and he's in this place where he um he thinks he's got a plan to uh solve all his problems. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's such a great great line actually to encapsulate the whole episode. It's it's everything that we've been talking about like he wakes up and he's waking up to his potential and and moving forward, right? Like he's finally ready to to take charge of his his life. He's feeling powerful. He's feeling, you know, more masculine. And uh, foreshadows one of my favorite lines that comes um, towards the end of the series when he's talking to Skylar in the kitchen and he tells her that he was alive. It's the same way of saying that, I think. I'm awake, I'm alive. Yeah. And it's a thing, it's just a human thing. It's something that, that you can relate to because part of life is getting you know, running into these kinds of situations. I mean, luckily I I've never had to deal with cancer, but I have, I've had surprises that, that, that hit me like that. And, and that is the, that's the way you go. You think, Hey, I'm going to solve this problem. And it's, uh, it just, it, I just think that it's one of the better uses of, of that, like that look inside of the character that we have in this episode, that's just full of them. So what about you? What is your your top uh, pick? So 
That would have been my favorite pick, but since it's yours, um, my favorite line would have to, and I already bro- uh, spoke about this a little bit earlier, and it's also where we get the title of our podcast. It is his speech um, in front of the class when he says that uh, he sees a chemistry not as the study of matter, but as the study of change. I think that is such a, a important line. It really lets us know how to understand this character and understand the series that we are about to watch. Yeah, it's almost a little bit too on the nose, but I think it, it's not, you know, because you don't really pick up on it the first time you watch it because you don't know who this guy is or, or why anything he's saying is important yet. It slides under the radar and then you think about it later. Yeah, yeah. I don't think watching it the first time I had that sort of insight. It wasn't until later, you know, but it is uh, the perfect description of what we witness. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about favorite shot? Do you have a favorite moment in the episode? Yeah, I I would have to say it's the shot of the mustard stain on the doctor's coat. His <laughs> his nice clean white coat. Um, mustard, you know, I I like mustard on and you know, but it's like one of those things. Like when you get it on your hand or your clothes, it's a nightmare, right? It's just like the 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 worst condiment when it comes to that, maybe. And um, this is the situation where he's in he's he's in this. He's getting the worst news a person can get. He's dying. And it's one of those scenes that it could go, it, it could, they could have really played it up. They could have really cued the, uh, the score and they could have really used it as a way to, to pull on your heartstrings and, and really get you on this guy's side in all those ways that TV does, you know, that, that, that they're really good at doing. And they went this other direction, and I think it is fantastic. And it's one of the things that did hit me the very first time I re- watched it. I was like, "Oh, well, that's that's something." Like it, it caught my attention. And um, you know what? I think that what I, you know, thinking about it now, I think what really works about it for me is there's you know, characters can be sympathetic because something bad is happening to them you know Mm -hmm. that that's a pretty that's pretty straightforward and something that that that's a part of every story but this is this little situation and the way that they filmed it and the way that he is experiencing hearing this bad news this makes me empathize with him you know what i mean like this makes me think about like getting the worst news that i have ever got it's not the same as is what his is but how that felt and 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 how how hard it can be to absorb some bad news, right? Something that you don't want to hear that you don't want to believe like that your body can't even really process, which is what I feel like this, this is what this felt like to me when I first saw this, you know, he's looking at this and and there's, there's a visual, there's visual things here too. Like the, the clean white coat, the doctor is supposed to be this, you know, elevated figure and, you see that mustard stain there. It's kind of like Walt himself, the way he is kind of becomes the, the cancer in his story, you know, and, and how he uh, kind of stains everyone around him and everything else. But yeah, that, that weirdness of the way that the awkwardness of, of him trying to, to process and then just focusing outward on this, on this imperfect, like this weird thing that's going on and, pulling it up and then just matter of factly yeah i heard you uh stage three cancer inoperable yep definitely i'm gonna die maybe two years if i do the the chemo 
it's very business, right? And it, it highlights the absurdity of the moment. And and I think the the show runners really subverted expectations. This is a scene we've seen many, many times in TV shows and films. A character receives devastating news. And as you say, the music swells and, you know, they, they get teary-eyed or whatever. And it's almost like we're being told that this is an emotional scene. You should feel really bad. But yeah. they feel they, something they, right they, now. Yeah, but they pull back, right? And they let us feel for him the way we're going to feel for him already. And I think that's one of the, actually, oddly enough, one of the reasons that makes him even more empathetic, right? Yeah, I, I would argue that this is the the point where he goes from being just someone that you feel sorry for, but but someone that you actually are fighting for, you know, that you, you feel connected to on a human level that, you know, you don't necessarily, that, that doesn't necessarily happen until that point. Yeah, agreed. And it's that sort of... Um practicality of Walt and his ability to compartmentalize something else that we've been sort of talking about um, throughout this this episode is uh, how he's able to separate what he does at home what he does at school and like what he's doing to make money right you know being this this meth kingpin and how he is able to separate those identities um, so much so that he invents this character Heisenberg but as we see right and something we've been talking about and, and contemplating was are these really two separate identities Identities, or was Heisenberg's there all along? And um, there are a couple other moments that I think also sort of speak to the absurdity um, and, and Walt's ability to regain control, right? So I think of that moment um, right after, uh, it's, it comes at the end of the episode, right? But it's a but picks up where the, the teaser ends, right? Where they're in the RV, they've just crashed, and they have the bodies in the back of the RV. And Jesse comes to, and he comes out, and he walks up to Walt, and he's like, what happened to them? What'd you do to them? And he's like, oh, phosphine gas. And then he throws up, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then he's like, all right, let's clean this up. You know, it's very, like, he snaps right back into, um, you know, what needs to be done. So I think it's it's a, a sort of really interesting look at his character and, and how he's able to function and process in, in face of doing all these horrible things. Like, how is he able to sleep at night? In other words, so we, we get a glimpse of that with that little mustard stain. I think that is a really great pick. Yeah. What about you then? What is, what is, it, did I probably stole it again? Did I steal it or do you have something different? I have a couple of different things, right? And if I might cheat a little bit here. I kind of have two moments I was having a hard time deciding um, among because there's so many great moments. But one yeah. is in the same scene that you're describing, Pete. And it's not so much like a shot as it is the transition. I love the transition when he's on the MRI machine, you know, getting scanned at the hospital. And then it cuts to his reflection in the doctor's desk. And then we, um, which is upside down just like he is shot upside down on the MRI machine. And then the camera pans up to him and we see him sitting there. And he's got this uh, painting of the Sandias, I, I'm assuming, it's mountains behind him on the, the wall. And I was thinking about how that also sort of uh, calls forward to that scene in front of the, um, the credit union, Mesa Credit Union, when he pulls out the money to buy the RV. And that's where your favorite line comes from, the yeah, I'm awake yeah. line. So like, I was thinking of what what mountains represent symbolically. So we, we talked at the beginning of this podcast about the landscape of Albuquerque being a character, but also mountains and what they are symbolic for, right? So they are these huge looming things that at least historically have been representative of like dreams and aspirations and also conquering something, right? So it's like a great challenge. You can think of like Hillary's Everest 
you know, so being faced with, with an obstacle, right? And there are a lot of obstacles. So from being diagnosed with cancer to, you know, taking his life savings out to buy an RV, is this really going to work or is it going to be a lucrative thing? So I really love uh, those moments, but probably if I had to say like one favorite shot, it would have to be of Walt in his tidy whities He's got one tail, like one side of his uh, shirt tucked into his underwear. <laughs> That's such a when... great detail to point out because I, I never really thought about, I mean, I saw it a, a bunch of times and it works perfectly, but I never, I never put it into words and said them out loud like you just did. Yeah, so that scene of him at the end of the episode, again, uh, picking up where the, the cold open um, left off, where he's holding the gun and we're looking down the barrel of the gun. I mean, can you think of a more iconic shot, really, of the whole series? I mean, that that became such an important part of the series and an iconic and representation. Yeah, and I, I know there's something out there, an interview with Vince, where he talks about how John Toll uh, tried to talk him out of doing that. He, just because of the technical reasons and he he decided to to argue with him and and make sure it stayed in there and i agree it 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 does it's got more visual flair than 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 a lot of stuff in this but it it i think it works in this in this particular instance to just it, you can't forget it once you see it you can't forget it it's part of your it's a part of it's a part of the way that you that you remember the show Absolutely. And, you know, that's the genius of Vince Gilligan. I'm glad he didn't listen to John Toll. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar winner, John Toll. Let's not yeah. forget that part. Yeah, but I, they, and you, you touched on something there, too, about um, about how they made new, the New Mexico landscape a character, how that became mm -hmm. such a big part of this. And, and I'm sure that's something we'll talk about a lot throughout this first season and, and throughout the series. But... That's another one of those fun uh, circumstances, one of those fun things that happened. Like this was written to be in Riverside, California. If you read the the pilot, um, it has nothing, there's no mention, there was no idea to be in New Mexico. This was a, a situation where they got a tax break for, for shooting there and they decided to to change it up. And yeah, what would it be like if it wasn't, if they didn't have that, I mean, it's such a good, good thing. And there's another story there too, about how Vince, he got the flu really bad while they were shooting the pilot and he actually had to leave for a few days. So that just left the crew uh, to go around and shoot a lot of the, you know, a lot of, um, of the backgrounds and the, and the, and the city and the mountains and everything else. And, uh, that, that probably made the, the whole, like that, the whole visual aesthetic, it probably helped develop that in a way that, that might not have happened if, if he hadn't got sick and had to go home and couldn't shoot for a few days. Yeah. I mean, tax breaks and flus, uh, are, are, <laughs> you know, fortuitous in this case, um, in, in more yeah. ways than one. So yeah, uh, it is interesting to think about how different it would look had it been filmed somewhere else. And I'm so glad they filmed it in, in New Mexico. I'm so glad that they did. Cause it's one of the, I can't imagine it anywhere else. I really can't. I mean, how many shows yeah. have we seen in California? I mean, California is beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but getting this really novel landscape that you never really got to see. I mean, outside of like some of like the classic Westerns, uh, mm -hmm. we don't really actually get to see 
this landscape. So there was something really novel and interesting about it. And again, just a sort of visual representation of this bifurcation I've been talking about. So you have the suburban, uh, you know, nicely like manicured yards, cul-de-sac suburbs of Albuquerque, right? Where this middle-aged man lives with his very average middle-class family, living his middle-class life. And then you're out in the wilds of the desert, right? Where where Heisenberg is, is born. So, mm. um, um, I think the landscape really, like, really adds so much to that. It really does, and I don't know if if any other landscape would have worked as well. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I think that there is so much more that we could talk about here, but I'm afraid that we might need to wrap it all up. What do you think? Yeah, I think that about does it. There's so much more that we could say and that we will say, and we hope that uh, you will join us uh, next week for our next episode. And if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Breaking Bad GDT. That's GDT as in growth, decay, transformation. And our email is breakingbadgdt at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, please send us some feedback if you have questions. We're not really sure how we'll handle that, but we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're brand new at this, as you can tell. So we want to get an idea of what you guys want to hear and um, what you think so far. We do hope you'll join us next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.